all of our faiths have within them a theology of interfaith cooperation, ideas of how God guides us to be in positive, cooperative relationship. There's the beautiful line in the Quran that God made us different nations and tribes that we may come to know one another, and we are meant to compete in righteousness with each other. I love that. This is In Good Faith, listening to first-person experiences of faith and belief. On In Good Faith, it's our privilege to hear stories and accounts from believers told in their own words. Our hope is to listen with an open heart, celebrating the power of faith and belief and what those stories mean to the ones who tell them. This week on In Good Faith, I speak with Ibu Patel, founder and president of Interfaith America, based in Chicago and author of the recent We Need to Build, Field Notes for Diverse Democracy from Beacon Press. Ibu is also the host of the new podcast Interfaith America with Ibu Patel, and he's begun writing an op-ed column on a regular basis for Utah's Deseret News. Ibu Patel was previously a guest on In Good Faith. You might want to check out episode 56. We join this conversation with Ibu explaining his podcast. Well, the, the podcast was, was recorded over the course of the summer. I wanted to, to talk with folks about the long-term issues affecting American culture and religion and civic life and not necessarily the news of the day. So I talked with some great people, Krista Tippett, uh, David Brooks, Shirley Hoogstra, Simranjit Singh, about the, sh- the shifts in, in the American religious landscape and what they will mean for our culture and American life in the decades to come. This book, We Need to Build, seems like a manual for the next generation. Like, here, guys, read this because you're going to have to build this. You need a blueprint. And this is about creating an interfaith democracy. So who is the audience? Is that that next generation? Well, right now the audience is whoever's listening to this radio show. <laughs> you know, I really, I really hope you spend some time with the book because the idea is that what we are attempting to do in the United States of America is actually quite remarkable. We are the world's first attempt at a religiously diverse democracy. It's never tried before on a mass level. We are the most religiously diverse nation in human history, and we're the most religiously devout nation in the Western Hemisphere at a time of great identity tensions. And for too long, we understand we understood America as a melting pot. It was many identities that had to dissolve themselves into a single dominant culture. That's not a good diversity paradigm. Right now, diversity is too often understood as a battlefield where the oppressed is supposed to overthrow the oppressor, where we're supposed to only cultivate tensions with one another. That's also not a good way to have a diverse democracy. So I write in my book and on my podcast and in my column for for Deseret why America should think of itself as a potluck nation. And a potluck, of course, is a space that welcomes the distinctive contributions of diverse communities. You don't have a potluck unless people contribute. And the host invites people because the host believes people are contributors, right? Everybody has a gift to bring. Everybody has a dish to bring to the potluck. And then you create a space where you can nurture enriching conversations and creative combinations. That's what makes a diverse democracy so exciting, so dynamic, so wonderful, so delicious. We need to understand American diversity in that way. Everybody's a contributor. You want a diversity of dishes at the potluck. You want to create a space where you can nurture enriching conversations and creative combinations. 
You want the community to take responsibility for the common space. The best moments in a potluck are when somebody's spicy dip recipe from the Middle East goes perfectly with somebody's crusty bread recipe from Eastern Europe. In other words, it's these, it's these wonderful, creative, even unlikely combinations that makes a potluck special. That's what makes a diverse democracy special. That's where we get so many of our most wonderful cultural forms, whether it's jazz or blues or even certain Broadway musicals. And that's what we need to be nurturing. It should be a positive and proactive approach to diversity, not one that is principally about tensions, one that is principally about creative combinations. I wonder if I could bring up a question that you were asked that really got you thinking, it sounds like. As you you found the organization, you've been going for a few years, and in talking to some of this is Ron Kinneman, who had been involved with the YMCA program asks you, what will the world look like if you are successful? The, the world will be a place where we respect our diverse identities, we relate positively across difference, we cooperate with others to serve the common good. Respect, relate, cooperate. That's what the world will be like. Now, sometimes when people feel passionately about wanting to make change, and that activism and that getting attention for the cause is necessary, then you talk about what then, when a change yes. starts to happen? That's where it really got interesting for me because we watch you sort of have to tread water while you figure this out. Right. I, you know, I, I write about being the kind of activist for too long. It was only actually a couple of years, but it, it was too long in retrospect. What I was principally good at was telling other people what they were doing wrong. I think social change is more about doing things that are better, right? And I have a line in the book, defeat the things you do not love by building the things you do. The goal of social change is not a more ferocious revolution. The goal of social change is a more beautiful social order. And a more beautiful social order is about a network of good institutions. We need to be busy building better institutions, not telling other people how they're getting everything wrong. And uh, I love this. Uh, in chapter 10, you say, really, along with the quote you just gave, be guided by a vision for, not just anger against. And I'm wondering, do you have an example of, of that success by building for something, not just fighting against? I, I write a lot about religion in this book. And I, I write about how religion is a great format for positive social change because Religion at its best is about the articulation of an ideal. So in Christian language, for example, it's the kingdom of heaven on earth. That's the ideal. And this is how people are together in that next world. The lion and the lamb lie down with each other, right? And then what religion at its best tries to do is to build a series of institutions which are an instantiation of that vision. And I think the LDS community does this really admirably. And of course, Deseret is, is one instantiation of an LDS vision. BYU is another instantiation. Every church, every ward is an attempt at an instantiation of, of a vision of the ideal. And so I write a lot in this book about how religion offers us a positive format for social change. You have a vision of what the good is, what the ideal is, and then you're building concrete institutions to that. So we're an interfaith podcast, and we have our own reasons why we think that's important. But many people would say, well, religion actually divides people. You know, if you go to our website, interfaithamerica.org, 
the first thing you'll see is a big banner that says faith is a bridge. And if you scroll down a little bit, you'll see a video, our Interfaith America video, which which is this kind of beautiful montage of how different religious language speaks to the ideal of pluralism. And so what we say is all of our faiths have within them a theology of interfaith cooperation, ideas of how God or the divine in some way, shape, or form, how God guides us to be in positive, cooperative relationships with people from other faiths. And, you know, in Islam, there's the beautiful line in the Quran that God made us different nations and tribes that we may come to know one another. And we are meant to compete in righteousness with each other. I love that, right? (laughs) You're you're meant to cooperate with each other. And if there's going to be competition, it should be around goodness. We deeply respect the differences, even the disagreements between diverse faiths. And we are deeply inspired by knowing that cooperation across difference and disagreement is sacred. I'm going to say that again, right? Because I I think that that's part of the ethos of your radio show. And it's the ethos of my organization. It's the ethos of my book. It's the ethos of my podcast. It's the ethos of my Deseret columns, which is that diversity means a range of differences, including the differences you don't like. And cooperation across disagreement is sacred. I was listening this morning to the podcast you did with Simran Jeet Singh. One thing that really caught me as, as you're sort of comparing notes together, and you're from different faith traditions, but also minority faith traditions in the U.S. As young people, neither of you were seeking to be religious figures in your faith. And in some ways, it was just kind of a background culture that you were growing in. But something happened at some point that makes you really latch on to the religious tradition that you had, I think as a touchstone or sort of an anchor. Am I hearing that right? How was that for you? Yeah, absolutely. You know, for both Shimron and me, and Shimron is a a Sikh American. He's written a great book. For him, Sikhism, for me, my Ismaili Muslim faith, it was in the background of our lives. It was important to our parents. And we kind of absorbed some of it by osmosis but we really made it our own when we were young adults. And and I think for two reasons. One is both of us experienced ugly discrimination around both race and religion. I'm a bit older than Simran, so for him, 9-11 was very forming. He was, I think he was a senior in high school at the time. I was a a graduate student at the time. Uh, But I I experienced ugly racism, for example, around the Iraq war of, of the late 80s. Recognizing that our cultures, our heritages, our colors, our faiths were something that other people considered ugly, that was striking to us. And the second thing is finding in those faiths deep inspiration and, you know, light as a common symbol across Sikhism and Islam. In Islam, the Quran says that God is like light upon light. In Sikhism, you're meant to like to radiate your light for others. And so both Simran's story and my story are about embracing your faith in a way that inspires you to serve others. Do you have some examples about what has worked for different groups to do interfaith work? So one of the things that I encourage people to do, people interested in diversity work, people interested in social change, people interested in faith, 
is I say, let's take a Jane Jacobs approach to the world. Jane Jacobs versus Robert Moses. And Robert Moses would sit in a boardroom and come up with what he thought was the perfect system and try to impose it upon people. And one of those systems was the highway system in New York and the region. And Jane Jacobs took a different approach. She would go to neighborhoods and she would observe good spaces in neighborhoods. Where are the places where kids play? Where are the places where where parents talk? And she would ask, how do we do more of that? And so one of the things I always encourage people to do is to say, tell me where positive cooperation is already happening in our society. So there are people of different faiths who have very different ideas of creation and salvation and doctrine who are performing life-saving heart surgeries right now as we speak. There are people of different faiths who disagree deeply on important matters, who are fighting fires together, who are serving on PTAs together, who are coaching Little League together, who are running companies together, who are teaching in classes together. This is profound. I want us to pause and reflect and cherish and notice these things, right? There are so many places in what I call our civic life where people of different identities and divergent ideologies cooperate together. I think the first thing we ought to do is recognize that and cherish it. And then ask the question, how do we do more of it? How do we do, in my, uh, in my book, on my radio show, in my neighborhood, can I create spaces where people from diverse identities and divergent ideologies are cooperating? Can I host a potluck? That's a great place for people from diverse identities and divergent ideologies can cooperate together. And then can I tell that story to the public? Can I say, this is actually really what America is about. The way that the Jews and the Muslims, the way that the Mormons and the atheists, the way that the Catholics and the Baptists, the way that they cooperate together on our Little League team and our parent-teacher association, that's what America is about. Identify the places where it's happening, cherish and strengthen those, spread them to other places, do them in your neighborhood, and then tell the story as the American story. An upcoming guest for your podcast is Laurie Patton, who we spoke with uh, about a year ago. And what you're saying ties in. She says, it's not that we get together and compare religions. It's that we say, what do we care about and how can we do that together? She calls it do a third thing. You know, we excel at this in the United States. For most Americans, we are in constant positive contact with people from different identities, faiths, races, ethnicities. You take a flight and there's people of different sexualities and different races and ethnicities and religions who are making that airplane stay in the air, right? You go to a restaurant, you put your kid in an extracurricular activity. It's people from all different backgrounds who are partnering together to serve others. What we want to say is that's the warp and woof of American life. That's the American public happening all around us. We're bringing a dish to the table. And what we need to do now is not only strengthen it and spread it, but we need to tell it as the American story. The American story is not a story of division. It's not a story of of divisiveness. It's a story of respect, relate, cooperate. And I think we need people to tell that story because other people are telling a different story. You know, Alistair McIntyre, the the great Catholic philosopher Ed Notre Dame says, I cannot tell you who I am or what I am going to do unless I tell you the story or stories of which I am a part, right? Human beings are not only storytelling creatures, we are story following creatures. 
one of the great dangers of our time is that we have been convinced that we live in the in the age of division. And I actually think if we reframe the story, and if we look at all of the positive cooperation all around us and think to ourselves, I live in one of the most cooperative eras in human history, how do I strengthen and advance that cooperation? I think that that's the kind of work we need to be doing. So I'm curious if you see some particular weaknesses in our society or some areas that really need a lot of work or shoring up, if you see ways that faith communities can address those specifically. I think we are going through a watershed moment in American history. The closest analog is probably the late 19th, early 20th century, where you had mass urbanization happening, you had industrialization happening in in an accelerated way, you had significant income inequality. And because cities were teeming, they were full of all kinds of new problems, Uh, sanitation, health, juvenile delinquency, violence, et cetera. And you had great reformers like Jane Addams build concrete institutions like Hull House that solved the social problems around them and that spread those solutions to the country and the world. And we need people like Jane Addams right now. We need people who are building institutions like Hull House who are doing things better in everything from climate to public safety to racial reconciliation. We need institutions that are doing things better. And I hope your listeners take that seriously. We're at a time where where we're having massive economic communications, technological shifts. We need concrete institutions that embody better ways of doing things that can lift our spirits, tell new stories, and spread the ethos to the world. A concept that really struck us here as we were preparing and looking through uh, the book was to be careful about turning identity categories into ideological categories. And I think you're saying, don't assume that everyone who's one race or of one faith or one economic strata thinks like a monolith, thinks exactly the same. You know, we're living through a moment of, of identity and diversity consciousness, and I think that that's positive. If we view identities as assets and strengths, as the things that inspire us to bring a distinctive dish to the American potluck, but if we make identity a barrier of division or a bludgeon of domination rather than a bridge of cooperation, we're we're in real trouble. And and one of the ways that we make identity a barrier of division is, is we make assumptions about what people believe or think about a whole range of matters based on how they look or what their religion is or what their ethnicity is. You know, I'll, I'll just tell a personal story. I remember um, a professor when I was in college saying that he had set up in online chat rooms for student discussion. This was this was at a time when an online chat room was actually a rarity. This is the mid-1990s. He said he had set them up because he noticed that many of his Asian-American students preferred to not talk in class and they preferred to talk online. And then he looked right at me. And I was furious about that because. First of all, I enjoy talking in class. Secondly, I don't really like, you know, online chat rooms. And third, and, and most perniciously, in his statement, which he made from a positive intent, I, I want to underscore that, like so much of this is done with positive intent, but I think it, it ends up having a negative impact. His statement of positive intent was essentially saying, 
an authentic way of being Asian American is wanting to talk in a chat room online rather than in class, right? If he was setting up kind of a standard of authenticity and then imposing it upon me, I don't think that that's a good way of doing things. I don't think that we should hold up, you know, this is the right way to be African-American or LDS or Catholic or whatever. I think we should recognize that people's identities have a significant impact on their lives, but we should always be in a mode of inquiry rather than a mode of judgment. What does it mean for you to be LDS? What does it mean for you to be African-American? What does it mean that your mom is Polish and your dad is Ukrainian? I'm curious about that. We should be in a mode of inquiry and curiosity, not judgment and condemnation and dogma. I like the idea that if we bring that curiosity to the very smallest level, that when you're at a bus stop, when you maybe need help with something or just need a comment. People like to be complimented. I've gotten into lots of good conversations when I say to somebody, that's a beautiful cross around your neck. Tell me about it. This is an heirloom for my grandmother. This is an Ethiopian cross. Uh, this was something that my dad gave me. We connect with each other when we tell each other what we appreciate about one another and then inquire. Hmm. I want to ask about this op-ed series that you've started. What was it that brought this to mind? Like, this is a thing I want to do because this will take ongoing effort for you to do, but there were, must have been some... Something appealing about this. I want to be a part of telling the story of interfaith America to a nation that does not yet know that that is what it is and that is who we are. The framework or paradigm of Judeo-Christian was actually invented in the 1930s. It's not centuries old. It was invented quite recently, really as a response to the growth of Catholics and Jews in American life and to really ugly anti-Semitism and anti-Catholicism in the 1920s. So I think that we are at a similar point in our history. We're at a point where the number of Muslims and secular humanists and Hindus and Buddhists have grown dramatically. There are now as many Muslims in America as ELCA Lutherans. The median age of Muslims is 20 years younger. We are way beyond the demographics of just being Judeo-Christian. And so part of what I want to do in this Deseret column is tell stories of how we have become interfaith America, tell stories of America as a potluck nation, not a melting pot, not a battlefield. Help us, help your audience, help these readers understand the nation in more expansive ways and then be able to contribute to it positively. I love that, not a battlefield. In your book, you, you say the genius of Dr. King was that he understood that in a democracy, you have to live with the people you defeat. Yes. In other yes. words, we're also going to be neighbors even after we decide things one way or another. So there's got to be a process by which we can still be neighbors after things are decided. I, I think that's exactly right. And, and actually, there's got to be a process where we can be neighbors while we have disputes. That is simply life in a diverse democracy. You know, John Courtney Murray, the great Jesuit philosopher, I quote him a lot in my book, We Need to Build. He writes about how special it is to live in a nation where you have diverse identities and divergent ideologies coming together within a common civic and political community. And then he underscores, people need to be committed to the strength of that underlying civic and political community. 
You cannot just be committed to your particular identity or your particular ideology. You, you have a stake not just in, in how your team plays, but you have a stake in how the field is curated. You can't have wild grass. You can't have dirt everywhere. You can't have bases that are tossed around. You can't not have umpires, right? You have to have a field that everybody can play on. And then you're committed to your particular identity or your particular ideology. And I think that that we are losing the importance of being committed to the underlying structures of our democracy and in our society. How does the tradition of being a Ismaili Muslim help you or drive you or support you in what you want to accomplish? Yeah, I'm a really proud Ismaili Muslim, many reasons for it. One is, like any religious believer, I believe in the truth of my of my faith. You know, I believe in Prophet of, of Muhammad, may the peace and blessings be upon him. I believe in the finality of the Quranic message. I believe that that God has given us a present and living guide in the form of an imam who, who guides his community in both spiritual and material ways. And so I believe in the truth of, of the tradition. I also am greatly admiring of how we Ismailis, similar to, to Mormons, are excellent institution builders. We have built remarkable institutions within our own Ismaili community, but we also build museums and academic institutes like the Institute of Ismaili Studies and humanitarian organizations like FOCUS and arts and culture organizations like the Aga Khan Trust for Culture. And so because what I am trying to do right now is build a civic institution, Interfaith America, I take an awful lot of inspiration from my own faith community and the kind of institution building it has done. You know, Ismailis over a thousand years ago built the city of Cairo, built the university that is Al-Azhar, the oldest continuing university in the world. So I take a lot of inspiration from the institution building of my community. Do you feel some sense of calling, like a mission given to you? Oh, oh yeah. I mean, yes, absolutely. I, I don't feel that like, you know, in kind of a God tapped me personally on the shoulder type way. But we Muslims believe that God gave us his breath. That's how he created all of us, with his breath and with clay. And he makes us his Abd and Halifa, his servant and representative on the planet. We, we are God's deputy on earth and we are, we are the steward creation. And what makes creation distinctive is diversity. God makes creation diverse, and he gives us humans the specific gift to be able to steward a diverse creation. And so I feel a calling to do that as well as possible. And this book, We Need to Build, and this podcast, Interfaith America with Ibu Patel, my Deseret columns, and my organization, Interfaith America, they're all attempts to be God's Abdel Khalifa. Thanks again to Ibu Patel from Interfaith America. You can find the organization on the web at interfaithamerica.org and listen to the podcast on all major podcast platforms. This episode was produced and edited by Heather Bigley. Thanks to Daniel Phillips for help with sound design. In Good Faith is committed to the idea that we all benefit from hearing people of widely varying backgrounds share their personal experience with faith and belief. In fact, we think people with such experience deserve some of our best listening. If you enjoy the show, be sure and leave a comment or a review where you get your podcasts. That helps spread the word. Find us on Twitter and Instagram at In Good Faith Pod and our Facebook page, In Good Faith Podcast. In Good Faith is a production of BYU Radio. 
I'm Stephen Cap Perry. I hope you'll join me again soon right here in good faith.